Good to see you all. Um, good to be with you live on a Sunday. I just need to do a shout out to my daughter who's watching. What's up, Eden? Daddy's on TV. I made it. Um, it's strange having a baby in lockdown because unless you're on Instagram, most of you haven't seen her. So here's a little plug for Family Matters tomorrow night. Come at Family Matters so you can see all the babies that are still awake before they've gone to bed that you haven't been able to see in lockdown. That's a pretty good reason to come, right? Huh? Family Matters? Wednesday. <laughs> I did that last week. I did that last week. Wednesday. Oh, my goodness. Daddy brain. That's the thing. That's the thing. Um, that's a real thing. Yeah. You know more than anyone. Um, <laughs> it is good to be together. I'm going to jump in. We're starting a new series today. Uh, it's called As For Me and My House. I'm very excited about it because the weeks that follow, we're hearing from various people in our congregation, including Ruth Horsfall speaking next week, which I'm so excited about. And um, this is a series where we're really going to just rededicate ourselves to Jesus and his way. And uh, we're going to end this year in style. We're going to end this year well. Psalm 65 says, the, the Lord crowns the year with good things. And if there was ever a year where we needed to hold on to that promise, it would be 2020. I was thinking about Eden being born in 2020, and you know, babies that are born in 2020, one day saying, can you tell me something about the year when I was born? What was it like? Um, and I'll, I'll just say, Eden, go Google it. Go Google it. Um, but yeah, Psalm 65, the Lord crowns the year with good things. So we're going to be spending the next few weeks talking about how I end this year well. The theme for the year has been what kind of people ought we to be out of the um, book of Second Peter. And so we're dedicating the time to really explore how to end this year well, how to end this year more in love with Jesus than we were when we started the year. And um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give some context to this scripture. And in the following weeks, we're going to really bring it down to sort of how it applies to our day to day. So we're going to kind of Google off this morning. We're going to go big picture on the scripture. Um, you can turn to it. It is Joshua, book of Joshua, chapter 24, and uh, we're going to read from verse 14. I'm going to give you some context before I start reading because it's always good to know what's going on before we dive in. Real quick biblical overview, real quick. The story of the Israelites. They have been in captivity. They've been in Egypt. Moses has come along. They've been free from Egypt. Incredible stories of their liberation. They've escaped the Egyptian stronghold. They arrive at Mount Sinai. You all know the story. Moses goes up and he gets the law, the commandments. He comes back down. He teaches the Israelites. A lot of different stuff happens. I'm bouncing around very quickly. They start walking through the wilderness. A lot happens in that time. And towards the end of Moses' life, who has walked with the Israelites, the Hebrew people, since getting them out of Egypt, he pauses in a camp outside the promised land, right? Outside of the land of Canaan, right outside. They camp, they stop. And Moses begins speaking to them about the kind of people they're going to be when they go in to this land that God has promised them would be theirs. This land which is already occupied by a lot of other people. And when I, when I think of that, I think of the times where my parents, you might relate, when my parents would kind of pause before we crossed the threshold of going into someone else's house and would just remind me and my sisters what it meant to be a smith, you know. Please and thank yous, etiquette. You know, Moses is saying to the Israelites, remember who you are. Remember who God is. Remember what he said. We're now going to go into this land, and you need to act on and walk out everything that God has said about you and what he's promised. And as I'm sure you know, Joshua comes in as the successor. 
Joshua comes in to lead the people uh, in the way Moses has been leading them. And they're very similar men in many respects. Joshua kind of takes the baton and he's leading the Israelites into the promised land. So this book of Joshua is a powerful book. It's probably one of the best named books in the Bible. And uh, it's one of the couple people go that. Uh, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's epic. And I'm going to just give you a quick overview. It's basically four what we might call movements to the book, right? There's four main elements to the book. The first one is this, Joshua 1 to 5. Joshua takes the Israelites into the land of Canaan. He goes in and uh, it's, it's pretty intense. It's a pretty intense start. He's basically spending most of the time reminding them about who they are and everything that Moses has instilled in them, everything that he's taught them, everything God has revealed to them. Uh, And they they do a few things. They send spies into the land initially, just like Moses did. Goes a lot better this time. Um, And then from the second sort of section, chapters 6 to 12, um, (laughs) I wrote in my my notes, it gets kind of Game of Thrones. I haven't actually seen Game of Thrones, but what I hear about Game of Thrones is kind of the book of Joshua 6 to 12. It's pretty bloody and violent. They get into the land and they they confront everybody else who lives there, the Canaanites, and it's a lot of war. There's a lot of war stories. We can get onto that in another series sometime. Then the third section is chapters 13 to 22. And that is a section of the book where you're basically reading a map without any pictures. It's a difficult, you read that, Carisha? You read that part? Is if anyone's read 13 to 22, it's not an easy read. Joshua is dividing up the land between the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's complex, it's important, it's very significant for the Israelites because they're finally getting the fulfillment of the promise, but it's not an easy read on our end. But if you make it that far, then you get to the final section of the book of Joshua. Right, Joshua 22 right to the end, 24. And 22, 24 is the end of Joshua's life, right? So he's taken over from Moses. He's led the people in. They've had all these Game of Thrones moments, bloody war. Then they divided up the land, and now Joshua's at the end of his life. He's a few steps away from death. And he does, very similar to what Moses did, he gathers the people and he gives them a new manifesto. He reaffirms, just like Moses did, everything that God has done in them up until this point. And he gives them another charge in terms of, all right, how then will you live? Which brings us right to Joshua 24, verse 14. You ready? He says this, Now, therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served before the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil, some, pe- some translations don't say evil. Some translations say unpleasant. <laughs> if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that was served in the region beyond the river, or the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But, says Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 16, so then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers 
up from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the ways that we went and among all the people from whom we passed. Okay, so that's where we're at. Joshua at the end of his life, giving a final charge to his people about how he hopes they will live and how he says he is going to live. This very ancient, incredibly old manifesto spoken out by Joshua has incredible application, meaning and purpose for us today in 2020, probably 2020 more than any other year. Ultimately, this is a verse, this is a series where we create the space to recommit ourselves to God where we create the space to decide once again who we truly want to be. And I don't know about you, but that's something that I need to do on the daily. <laughs> and to give the opportunity to all of us over these next few weeks to recommit and to reinstate who we want to be is so, so important, it's so powerful. So this, this phrase, as for me in my house, I will serve the Lord, you know, it's, uh, it's provocative because he's saying, you can live in a few different ways. You can choose to worship the gods of your fathers that your fathers worship, or, or you can worship the one true God. That's up to you. But Joshua's saying, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Now that word serve conjures up a lot of different kind of ideas and meanings, well, especially in my mind. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word serve, I think of doing things. I think of uh, duty. Um, I think of a very kind of like, practical, all right, I'm going to go and do things for God. The Hebrew word that's used there is closer to the English word cultivate. The Hebrew word is ohbad, and it's closer to the English word cultivate. So what he's saying is, and to cultivate means to prepare the ground, you know, in, in the kind of um, agricultural sense, to cultivate the ground for something that you intend to grow there. So what he's saying is, as for me, the way that I am going to position myself is cultivating the soil of my soul in such a way that it would grow to reflect my passion, my love, and my desire for God. He's not just saying, as for me in my house, we're going to go do a lot of things for God. He's saying, as for me in my house, the ground, the garden of our hearts is going to be cultivated and kept in such a way that we grow in the ways of God. It's rich cultivate, right? And it's very much a choice. You kind of think that for the Israelites up until this point, it almost wouldn't be a choice. They had seen so much happen in their favor that declared who God was. It's kind of like, why would you even consider something else? But Joshua is reminding us now, it is always, has always been a choice, what you feed grows and what you starve dies. And we experience that every single day. Ultimately, who we become is decided by the decisions we partake in today. Joshua is saying, I'm going to cultivate the soil of my soul today. This is something these guys on the stage know very well. When we worship like we did this morning, we're just singing songs to remind the deepest parts of who we are of the eternal truths. Would you agree? Amen. I know, I know you would agree with this, but what we've done this morning, we wouldn't describe as the epitome or the ultimate definition of worship. Would you agree? It's an expression, right? 
And, and for the Hebrew mindset, worship definitely wasn't singing songs on a Sunday morning. Worship was, was a posture, right? And so it was a posture of the heart, and worship was a defining attribute of actually what it meant to be human. So it was a never, never a question of, uh, you know, will you worship? It was only a question of what you worship. You will worship. Why? Because you, you're, it's, a, it's a foundational part of your humanity is to worship, is to d- ascribe meaning and, and worth and value to something. You will do it. The question is, to whom or to what will you do it? And Israel has this kind of history of worship uh, that is so kind of frivolous and so kind of fragile, it's often directed to whatever seems to be serving them the most at any given time. So their declaration and their posture towards God wasn't consistent, and Joshua knew that very well. I said this to Kara the other day. I said, I, um, I'm excited to preach on Sunday, but I also kind of don't want to preach this on Sunday where I'm going over these next few minutes, um, I don't think I've preached a sermon in a while that has felt so in process as what I'm going to say next. I feel very much in the midst of this. The reason I didn't want to preach it is because when you say things out loud, it rings even louder, you know, how true it is. And I know when I confess these truths, uh, well, I've got to live them out. And that's why I'm, I'm nervous because I know the truth and the weight that, that they carry. Um, so we are created to worship. That is intrinsically who we are. The choice is what will we worship. There's this Hebrew word that is just, it's, it's just got me, man. It's called, it's, it's shahaka, shahaka. That's how you pronounce it, shahaka. And it's the word most commonly used in the Hebrew scriptures when we read the word worship in our Bibles, all right? But that word is also used in the scriptures where we don't translate the word to be worship. So when we translate the word to be worship in English, that's often the root word, but it's also there when we translate it to be a different word. Let me give you an example. I'm going somewhere with this. Genesis 22 verse five says, Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and then we'll come again. And what did he mean by that? We're going to go and worship who? Yahweh. We're going to worship God, all right? So that's, the, that's that Hebrew word coming through. We're going to go worship Yahweh. Exodus 18, 7, it says this, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him, his father-in-law. And they asked each other their welfare and went into the tent. Shahaka, shahaka. The word is used the same both times. It's the same word. One says worship because it's attributed to God. The other one says bow down and kissed him is the phrase attributed to a man. But it's the same word, right? So the understanding of worship is all about posture. That word, shahaka, in its purest meaning, I've got to show you it rather than say it. I hope the camera can still follow me. You still with me? If you Google that word, this is what you'll see. You see someone bowing down, face to the floor, right? Bowing down, face to the floor. It's a posture. Prostrate on the floor. As low as you could possibly go. 
I was thinking about how uh, I remember when I finished my, I did a degree in philosophy. I don't remember much of it or I didn't, definitely didn't understand much of it. But um, when I finished it, Kara actually took me out for a meal. And she said to me at the end of the degree, four years studying philosophy, she said, how would you round up what you learn? <laughs> and if you know anything about philosophy, it's very hard to define anything in philosophy. It's kind of the point of it. So it wasn't an easy, you studied it, didn't you? Eastern religion, and so Kara says, what did you learn? And I said this, I remember saying, basically, babes, what I learned is, whatever the tradition, whatever the expression, whatever period of history we're talking about, everybody bows to something. Whether it's the existentialist, whether it's John Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, whether it's the, you know, the, the intellectual expression of the Enlightenment, or whether it's us, whether it's, you know, the believers in, in Yeshua and the followers of Jesus, we all bow to something constantly. The question is, what will we bow to? So when Joshua starts evoking the stories of the fathers of old who bowed to things in Egypt and then bowed to things outside of Egypt, he's really bringing it home. My friends, you have not been consistent in bowing before the Lord, right? You have not been consistent in upholding Yahweh as your one true God. This is where I'm starting to feel nervous because I know everything that I'm saying that Joshua's saying about them, I can say of myself, all right? So you guys will know this story, but I want to read it. This is probably one of the most, you know, remembered stories of Israel, the Israelites doing this. It's Exodus um, 32. I'll read it for you really quick. It's um, from verse 1. It says this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they've got to Mount Sinai, he goes up. Uh, when, sorry, where am I at? Yes. When he delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, who was kind of second in command, and he said, make us gods who shall go before us. I know you guys have heard this a million times, but please stay with me. They've come out of Egypt. They've seen all these miracles. Now Moses has gone up to the mountain to meet with God. And he's been a little bit delayed. It's taken a little bit longer than they wanted for him to come back down. So instantly they go to Aaron and they say, build us some new gods. As for this Moses, right? Check this out. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we do not know what became of him. We don't know what became of him. He's been up the mountain talking to God for too long. So Aaron said to them, remember Aaron's been there the whole time as well. Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, right? These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They just changed the ownership of the exodus from Yahweh to the calf, right? When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron then said, tomorrow we'll have a feast for Yahweh. Stay with me. And they rose up early the next day. They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, drink. They rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Right. Everybody still with me on the stage? All right, cool. Um, we've all heard that story a million times. It's so important to connect this story with Joshua's manifesto. It's so important. The reason is this. 
The golden calf was an intentional decision by Aaron. And the more I've studied the scripture, the more I've realized how intricately connected his decision was to the decisions I make today. Why did he make a golden calf? Of all the things he could make, why did he make a golden calf? I grew up with that story in Sunday school. I've heard it quoted so many times. But why did he make a golden calf? Two reasons. One. One of the most prominent deities in Egypt was the god in Greek, Apis, who was a bull. A big old scary looking bull, all right? These people have been in Egypt for how long? 400 years around this imagery. They've left Egypt, but where are they going? The land of Canaan, right? The god in the land of Canaan, the god of the Canaanites is the god Baal. Now, if you Google him, that is one scary-looking half-man, half-bull monster of a god. He's known as the storm god, right? The god of the Canaanites, Baal. So they've left Egypt, where they have the god Apis, and then they're going to Canaan, where they have the god Baal. And both, in both situations, God is represented as a what? A bull. A big, old, scary-looking bull. What does Aaron do? Makes a golden calf. What's going on here? Here's my thoughts. Here's my reflections. If you were going on a little country walk and you got to a field and it said, beware, calf in field. How would you feel about it? All good. Right. You're going for that little country walk and you get to the fence and it says, beware, bull in field. You don't go in. You don't walk into that field. I remember when I moved back to England from Pakistan, my parents and my sisters, we hadn't kind of encountered the lovely British countryside walks. And so when we went on the first few walks, I remember we did, they didn't have like cows in the way we keep cows in England and Pakistan. And I just remember the three of us in like hysterics, screaming and crying as my parents would like walk us through these fields like close to the fences, just terrified of the thought of there being a bull in this field, right? Aaron dumb, dumbs down the power and the provocative image of the bull to something that the Israelites can digest. It's more accessible, it's more familiar, and it's less threatening. The image is similar, right? But the power it possesses is less. And as soon as they've, they've put it up, and as soon as they start declaring who it is, what does he say? By the way, tomorrow we're going to have a feast for Yahweh. Let me tell you what's happening here. He's dumbing down the image of a false god. So the false god is easier to worship. And once that god has begun being worshipped, he fits the true god, Yahweh, into it. So the next morning they have a feast for Yahweh after they've always, already started worshipping the golden calf. What does this mean for us? What does it mean for Joshua on a Tuesday afternoon? I'll tell you, and this is where it gets so humbling and where it gets painful. I know, I know when I'm declaring something to be God in my life that is so obvious and so kind of uh, 
abhorrent that I can keep a good distance from it. You know, I, I, I can't imagine creating an icon in my life and saying, that's God, when I know who God is. But what I can do is adopt a safer, more accessible image of the gods that are presented in our culture and use that as a form to be worshipped. And then as and when it fits me, put Jesus back into the picture. I know what I can do is submit to the image of God in culture that surrounds me because it's easier and it's accessible and it is always on my terms. Remember, they only want a new expression of God because the one that they were believing in before seems to have been delayed in giving Moses the message. And so they create a God on their terms. I'm going to give you a really simple you know, uh, example. This might not connect with any of you, but I realized in 2020, I have watched the news more than any other time in my life. And I never used to watch the news. Like I didn't grow up in a household where, you know, on a Saturday morning, my dad would open up the papers or would watch the 6 p.m. news. The news wasn't a big deal in my house. I think partly was because there was so much other stuff going on and there was such a bigger story happening, you know. I was a missionary kid and the stories of the stories of the kingdom filled our house, i got to be honest. And what was going on in the news, I mean, it mattered because it mattered to be aware of things, but it wasn't, it wasn't an idol. And I have to confess this morning, the news has become an idol in my life this year. I have watched it so much. I have scrolled on my phone for updates so much. And I have to ask myself why I'm doing that. And the only reason I can really kind of get to of why I'm doing that now more than ever is because I really want some security. I really want to know what's happening next. I really want to understand this cultural moment. And so I'm literally, I'm using like the Apple News app where you get 15 different newspaper headlines at once. I'm going wherever I can go to get some security to bring some kind of safety into the moment that I'm in. And I have to recognize this morning, and maybe you can do the same thing, I have to recognize that I have changed my posture from one of bowing before the king to one that is bowing before the culture, where I'm getting a sense of security and a sense of safety from the voices that clearly, as we've all learned this year, have no more idea of what's going on than I do. <laughs> but it's happening. Anybody bold enough to say they can relate in some, some way? <laughs> it's there, and it's subtle, but it's there. My other one has been YouTube. I'm not going to lie. I've watched so much YouTube. I've watched so much YouTube this year, like just random stuff. I've watched so much like 10-year-old Gordon Ramsay Kitchen Nightmare videos, like all the time, like moments that I used to create for just... Not, I'm not going to try like say I'm holier than now. I'm not even like getting on my knees in prayer, but just creating space that was nourishing for my soul. I've been filling it with stuff which is numbing for my soul. And numbing of self is another attribute of idol worship. It's another, it's another way of seeking comfort from something that is so less than the one who can truly bring us comfort. Are you still with me? And that's why Joshua is saying, look, you can choose where you go in this time. 
You can choose where you worship. You can go back to the gods of your fathers, the gods before the river. I love that because they crossed the Jordan River. You can go back to the gods before we crossed the Jordan. Or you can go back to the gods that you had in Egypt. But as for me and my house, we will cultivate the soil of our soul in such a way that the garden it produces is the one that reflects a heart growing in God. That's what we're going to do. And then Jesus says, oh, this, this, is, this is where it gets amazing. Jesus says, this is Luke 10 and uh, Matthew 22. He says, look, it comes down to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's how you inherit eternal life. This isn't about doing more things. This is about falling more and more and more in love until the posture of your soul is like this. The posture of your soul looks like this. And it's not, it's not that you're disengaged. It's not that you're disengaged with what's going on around you. You're not disengaged by it, with it, but you're not distracted by it at the same time. It's not that I'm indifferent to what's going on around me. I'm just not distracted by what's going on around me. And I'm just in devotion and I'm dedicated to him. And this is, I mean, this is a, a longer topic, but... Jesus calls us out of the idol worship that our culture tries sucking us into, into the life we always hoped was true. That's the irony in all of this. That's the irony in all of this, is that Jesus offers us the life of abundance. Jesus gives us what we think everything we're going to might at some point offer up. You know when you're scrolling? Anybody relate to this? You're scrolling as if at some point there's going to be this, bing, oh, fulfillment. Yes, that was the post that I was looking for. Thank you, it's worth it. Okay, it was only 25 minutes today, but tomorrow might be less. So you go, all right, again, that's never gonna happen. It doesn't exist outside of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary, burdened, held down. This, the, the message says, burn out on religion, because our religion can be our greatest idol. Let me read this quote to you as I'm just beginning to end with this. Um, Timothy Keller, if you wanna read a book about idol worship, Get Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller, one of the great Bible teachers of our time. He says this, an idol is something that we look, no, sorry, an idol is something that we look to for, an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. Stay with me. Idolatry functions wildly, in, widely inside religious communities when doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god. Oof. This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God, then God himself and his grace. It is a subtle but deadly mistake. Another form of idolatry, idolatry within religious communities turns spiritual gifts and ministry success into counterfeit gods. Another kind of religious idolatry has to do with moral living itself. Though we may give lip service to Jesus as our example and inspiration, we are still looking to ourselves and our moral striving for salvation. Making an idol out of doctrinal accuracy, ministry success, or moral restitude leads to constant internal conflict, arrogance, and self-righteousness, and oppression of those whose views differ. This is the last line. If we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God can give, it will eventually lead to a broken heart. It's not about leading to just like you being less. You just, no, no, this is about a broken heart. We are love sick for God. We are actually, we're lovers of God more than anything else. And so this whole message is Joshua saying, as for me and my house, we will love God. We will love him. 
And the only two very simple things to practice this week as we move into this series. One, if you want to fall more, more in love with God in this season and you're like, I don't even know how to start. What, what do you mean? I'm just going to say this. Remember. Just begin remembering who God is and what he's done in your life. Um, Joshua is told in Joshua 1, God says to him, Joshua, meditate on the word day and night. Let it never leave your mouth. Let it never leave your side. Let it, let it never leave your thoughts. Meditate. What does that mean? Allow your mind, allow your thoughts to be formed by the presence of God. Allow the way you see the world to be defined by who he is. Build an Ebenezer. Put the stones together. The stones of the stories that remind you of who he is and what he's done. I asked Andy and the team if we could close with Come Thou Found. Because this song is just such a raw and beautiful articulation of this message. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen.